Hey, and welcome back to the Music History Project. Today is part two of our two-part series on Henry Steinway. If you didn't listen to part one, go back uh, to your iTunes store or your listening platform and check it out. Here we go. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. So here we are again, um, listening to the uh, wonderful and very entertaining interview from 2001 with Henry Steinway for the NAM Oral History Program. And it was uh, really neat to listen to his earlier um, re- recollections of the company and his family. And I think in this second part, we're going to be talking a little bit more about um, the uh the growth of the company during his own time uh, as president and employee of the Steinway Piano Company. Yeah, so let's jump right into it. And our first segment is going to be Henry talking about some of the more crowning moments, the defining moments that really uh, make Steinway stand apart from the rest of the industry, as well as some collaborations and and projects that he's worked on uh, along with Steinway. And we're really excited. Here we go. What comes to mind as some of the kind of the crown, crowning moments, the collaborations that have given Steinway uh, prestige? Well, uh, there were quite a few. To give you the history of it, when, when uh, <coughs> Steinway finally achieved placing this first gift into the White House, uh, Steinway assigned, Nahum assigned Stetson, one of his secretaries, who would go to Washington, work with the wife of the president on programs. And so that tradition of uh, consulting Mrs. President about social life continued up until, oh, about Eisenhower's time when there started to be a, a, a big office there now. Now, they, you know, the wife of the president, they, they can handle all kinds of stuff. They don't need somebody from New York. But my brother John used to go down there and he knew the chief usher, who's the guy who runs the White House. He's called chief usher, but he's really general manager of the White House. And uh, so that was the contact we'd see. Sometimes we'd uh, uh, go down with the artist. John would go down with them and make sure they got there on time and all that sort of thing. And I would say some of the exciting ones were, uh, of course, Van Kleiben, who was a big excitement. Uh, next to Paderewski, I think he is a name that resonates everywhere because of this remarkable thing, not only that he won, but the fact that he had a ticket tape played parade here in New York, and and he's been in the White House several times, and of course coming from Texas when Lyndon Johnson was president, he was there on several occasions, so uh, those Clyburn moments have been great. And then Horowitz played there, and that was uh, quite interesting. And then there are the playing presidents, like Truman uh, used to play the piano, Nixon played the piano. And one of the, we always, 
offer a piano for the private quarters if they want it. And so it's a regular grand or upright, whatever they want. And um, I think it was, yeah, it was during the Nixon years, we got a call from the White House saying, we have a great publicity idea. We want to give the Truman Library the Steinway that's in the private room. We see you own it. So how about it? So what could we do but give it to the White House? And then and Nixon officially presented this to Truman, the Democrat, for his library. And there was a nice publicity gimmick. They both sat down and played it and all that sort of thing. So it was a, a nice occasion. There is a, um, a book by a lady named Elise Kirk that uh, describes music in the White House from the beginning. Very interesting uh, what pianos were there and what music was played and all that sort of stuff. And somebody told me that uh, they're working on a documentary now, a PBS show that may be a two hour show that'll be music in the White House and uh, the, all the different things. They've had popular artists there. They've had all kinds of people. So that's about what I know about the White House. Interesting. Mm. In, in general, um, since you were so closely involved with it during your own period of time, um, what were some of the um, more prestigious collaborations that you have been a part of in terms of Steinway? Um, it's hard to say. It all gets to be a sort of a unreeling tape in my memory. But uh, one of the things that was a great occasion was our 100th anniversary in the year 1953, where um, through our then concert manager, Alexander Greiner, it was arranged that the New York Philharmonic would play and we would have 10 pianists play. And this was a, a wonderful and interesting occasion. And uh, Ed Sullivan, who was the biggest thing in TV at that time, said, I want to do a, quote, picture of the rehearsal. So on Sunday night before this concert, which I think was on a Monday or some, something like that, in Carnegie Hall, they, we set up eight pianos and uh, they played uh, under the directorship of, oh, I've forgotten now who it was, a distinguished old guy. And um, this was a remote, which in those days was rather tricky. Ed Sullivan was in the theater and he'd say, now we're going to try a remote from Carnegie Hall. We don't know where it. And his son-in-law, I think, was the producer. And sure, the thing worked and they picked it up. And uh, my father and mother were in the audience and he had them stand up. And I've got a film clip of it somewhere. It wow. was, uh, But that was, a, that was a, an exciting event because uh, that was my father's sort of swan song. That's what he was interested in, was this thing. He wrote a book, People and Pianos, that's a wonderful book with pictures about the thing. And um, we had this celebration and afterwards a big party at the Waldorf. And the next day, all the dealers came here for a cocktail party and we introduced a special piano that would be designed by Walter Darwin Teague, who name now forgotten, but was one of the big industrial designers of the day. So that's a, a, an exciting event that I remember. And uh, uh, there were others going way back. Joseph Hoffman, which was perhaps one of the most outstanding pianists that ever lived, in 1937 had a 50th anniversary of his first performance in the Metropolitan Opera House, which was then used for things other than opera. And it was still the old opera house down on 34th Street. 
And so, uh, again, they had a concert of Joseph Hoffman, and then afterwards, as a sort of an in-group came here to Steinway's and they sat up all night drinking and talking and so on, and I remember that with great interest. He was a very fascinating guy, Hoffman. He, he was one of the few pianists who was interested in how the piano works. And he, uh, there was a recent article on him about why there are no recordings. He, he was not happy with acoustic recordings and he was constantly experimenting with new ways of, of recording. And uh, uh, he eventually did, and I think they've patched together from, uh, he did make uh, player tapes, but um, uh, they've made some, some recordings now that are Joseph Hoffman. He, he had a command of the piano that was extraordinary. He made it sing, he made it sound good. That's of course what we love in the piano business. In our previous uh, segment of the, uh, the podcast for Henry's interview, we talked a little bit about his relationship with dealers. And I thought maybe this would be a good time to talk to Mike, who grew up in the music store, about the importance of working with the suppliers, uh, with the retailers. What is your take on the importance of that relationship? Well, I think with the entire music industry, it's all about the relationships. Um, because you, you never really want to work with someone unless you get along with them, unless you would, I don't know, you're interested in the same things, they're nice people. Um, so I, I definitely believe that the relationship between manufacturers and dealers um, has to be a strong one in order for it to work. And um, judging by how good of a guy Henry seems, um, I'm sure he had plenty of excellent relationships with his dealers, and that would further the, the company, would help Steinway get into more stores. It's almost as if they're doing him a favor. They want to help Henry, right. you know, this for the better cause kind of thing. Yeah, and I'm sure that happens with plenty of stores where it's it's more so about the people than it is the brand. Yeah, well said. I think you're right. But of course, a brand in this case sure didn't hurt. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's one of the one of the strongest brands. Too hard to sell Steinway, <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> I mean, ever since I started working at Nam, when you introduce yourself at a party or you know around family members or whatever, and trying to explain what you do for a living, mm -hmm. and say, well, it's part of the music products industry, I always say, you know, like Steinway and Fender, because right. you figure between those two, somebody's going to figure <laughs> out what it is that you do, <laughs> and that's all the names you have to drop. I think. Yeah. Unless you're my mom, then you still don't understand, <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> yeah, so let's hear Henry talking about uh, the relationships that he has uh, as the face of Signway with its dealers. And then he's also going to talk about the relationships in the NAM show, which is always great to hear some of these interviewees kind of plug the NAM show, because that's why we have jobs. As I say, the basic arrangement was uh, set by Nahum Stetson years ago with the idea that you are appointed a Steinway dealer for a certain territory and that, that is yours and we won't put another dealer in the old days, uh, maybe we still do, you draw lines on the map and say this is your territory and this is his and that's there. And so the Steinway franchise is much valued and uh, sought after and uh, becomes a sort of a privilege to be earned and you earn it by doing these other promotional activities. And that's pretty much the way it's been uh, since the beginning. And as I say, it was set up by Nahum Stetson. Then it was carried on by a fellow named Ernest Erks, whom he had hired and trained. 
I had him away from Chickering, strangely enough, and he was with us for years. And then in the 20s and up into my time, we had a wonderful fellow, Roman Domajewski, who was a Polish-born uh, sort of aristocrat who had, uh, uh, he fought in the French army against uh, the Germans in the war and then didn't want to go back to Poland and he was in London for a while then he came to New York and became our general sales manager all through the the time when he had to travel by railroad and you know, as he got older he said I'd fly from here to Newark so that I don't want to ever get in the train again because <laughs> those old sleepers and all that sort of stuff and then uh, he was succeeded by another man named Howard Cushing and so it's up to uh, Really, Frank Mazurko, who's our executive vice president, is now in charge of all the distribution as well as other things. So that's our, our sales thing, and it's the same basic thread runs to it from the time Stetson started to set these things up. Uh, way, way back, uh, there were a lot of Germans in the business, and, uh, in, and uh, interestingly and historically, our distribution, we were selling pianos in St. Louis, Missouri, before we were selling them in Boston, because Boston was chickering territory full of Yankees, and we couldn't get a dealer up there. But in St. Louis, there are a lot of Germans, in Milwaukee and in Cincinnati, and those were strong points for, for Steinway's early distribution. And then when Stetson came in, he he traveled the country and had travelers out there and, and picked up these guys like Leander S. Sherman, the founder of Sherman Clay, was a re remarkable fellow and uh, uh, developed that business. And then Lionel Healy in Chicago was also a uh, <clears throat> powerhouse. Old, old Pat Healy, who came from Boston, I think, and had gone to the Middle West. And that's why I think it's so important for the museum to preserve this history of these uh, stores. Like the existing one, Schmidt Music is now in its fourth generation and it's really extraordinary. I mean the original Schmidt was sent out there as a sheet music dealer. That's, that's the way it starts. Then he bought the store and then uh, he added band instruments and then uh, uh, his I guess grandson, my age, Bob Schmidt, was the guy who got them into keyboards and the whole thing just grew like that. And, those stories are the ones that I think should be preserved for, for the American history. Absolutely. What, what are your thoughts about um, the more successful approaches of lining up a relationship with a dealer? Is it the one-on-one -on -one contact, some of the people that you've had? Uh, does, do things like NAMS trade show fall into these categories? How, how yes. does that work? Um, there's no substitute for a one-on-one -on -one contact and that's why uh, Steinway now operates with I think it's four or five district managers who are responsible for a geographic district of the United States and that, that's their job to travel constantly with those dealers. Now uh, once a year they come in here and they have their meetings and they plan and they, they offer a lot of suggested promotions and as some of the smart dealers tell me, says we can't do them all, but they're good ideas and we pick this and that and they, they have different promotions such as um, one that's been used often is this uh, Steinway factory event 
We ship a lot of pianos and they say, this weekend you can have this wonderful display of Steinway pianos and special selection. That's something Bill McCormick thought up and still uses pretty effectively. And uh, I don't know the others, but there are a series of promotions. One of them mentioned the Horowitz piano. They have what they call legendary pianos. There's a Kleiben piano, a Horowitz piano, and then they, they often send another one, such as um, we had an art case made in honor of Gershwin, and it's sort of a cute piano, all in blue, Rhapsody in blue, and the desk represents the skyline of New York, and uh, wow. uh, so that one sometimes is, is used as a third one on this display. So uh, NAM show is extremely important for the dealers to come. One of the uh, most compelling moments, I believe, of Henry Steinway's professional career was the moment where he realized that uh, he needed to sell the company outside of the family. And that was the first time that ever happened uh, to the Steinway Company. And this is in the late 1960s when the conglomerates of the world were taking over just about every aspect of business and in particular the music industry. And it was a very hard decision. It wasn't one that uh, fell on favor by many of his other family members and uh, colleagues and employees at Steinway, but it was one that Henry uh, very heartfelt felt he had to do. Um, so he sold to uh, CBS, um, the broadcaster that had a division of musical instruments at the time and later owned uh, Fender guitars and several other uh, big names in the music products industry. Uh, so what's interesting is that there's a whole lot of conjecture about what that was and what that was like, um, but it's really neat to hear um, Henry's own words about that. So let's get his take on the, uh, the selling of Steinway to CBS. Your father um, turned over the reins almost 50 years ago. Yeah. Uh, what, would he, what would he think about the state of Steinway now? Um, I really don't know. It's hard to say because he was very emotional about uh, preserving Steinway all through the Depression and there are times when he should have closed it up and liquidated it as many piano business did, many good ones. Mathershek, I don't know how many that went out of business then, but he kept the flag flying. and. Uh, when we merged with CBS, my mother was against it because father wouldn't have liked it. And I said, well, it's, it's the wave of the future. We've got to do it. And I didn't know till the meeting whether she was going to vote her stock for or against it, but she did vote for it, finally. And I think I'd convinced her that it was the right thing. But what my father would have thought, I don't really know because he would have been bewildered, I think, at the loss of family control that was so important to him. But I am sure I did the right thing at that time. There is a progression to family businesses in this country. It's interesting to see that uh, uh, the Ford grandson has now taken over as chief executive officer of Ford, most unusual after many uh, intervals. And I'm a great admirer of his, whether it was grandfather or whoever it was, Henry Ford II, who was plucked out of the Navy and straightened that thing out at that time. But in general, you have a family business, it gets its run, then it goes into professional hands. And that's what makes me feel good today, is that 
we are in professional hands with Bruce as president and uh, the financial people and all that sort of thing. And they've all been there for 10, 15 years now, so they must like it and it must, it must be good. Uh, uh, the Dennis Hansen, who's the chief financial officer, has been there for many years and they still maintain. When the Birminghams owned it, they uh, made a company, Steinway Musical Instruments, in mass, and that's still the, the holding company for Steinway. And they have a small office there that controls the fiscal stuff, which I guess reports directly to the owners in Santa Monica. But the other people in Astoria all seem to be steady, and I know I don't go out to the factory as much as I used to, but when I do, there's a nice spirit there, a nice feeling of the uh, employees that things are going well. It's terrific. So I feel very upbeat about it. Well, I think you should. It, it, what amazes me is some of the history of uh, the last 15 or 20 years of keyboard development, synthesizers yeah. and electronic pianos and so on and so forth. And right. In a lot of respects, uh, you've got a really a, a run for your money, as it were, and, yeah. and uh, stability yeah. and consistency and the reputation of fine craftsmanship. Yeah. which your uh, company certainly has, right. uh, in my estimation, probably was one of the major factors in, in your... Uh, Absolutely. No doubt. And In fact, I remember when we sold to CBS, they said, don't ask me to do anything electronic. If you want to use electronic, get some other company to do electronics, uh, which they never did, I'm glad to say. But the electronic piano, whatever the piano is, the, the Rolands and those sort of things, are so good that there's no question that they have affected the inexpensive regular piano business that used to exist. Are truly remarkable what they can do. You plug them in, they work. If the kids want to practice, you can even turn them off and they have earphones and all that sort of stuff. So they're here to stay and getting better all the time and I guess cheaper. I don't know whether that's happening. So that's a big change in the in the industry, but there's ultimately nothing like a a true live piano that you play yourself, and that's what our customers like, and that's the kind of customers we try and find. So that was Henry talking about uh, the decision to sell Steinway out of the family and to CBS, the same people that bought Fender, as Dan mentioned, and. Uh, you know, it must have been hard going into that board meeting not knowing how everybody was going to vote. And it sounded, you know, his mom not his mom telling him leading up to it that she didn't think his dad would like that. And but Henry knowing it was the right move at the time for him and everything. And then to have his mom end up ultimately supporting him, I think just shows kind of shows a lot of the dynamic of the family. Yeah. I mean, what a, what a, sorry, what a tough decision though. I mean, mm. imagine even just like a smaller family business selling it out of the family's tough, but selling this, this globally recognized name that's yeah, been in your I family can't. for yeah. generations. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be tough. But you know what? He was always very positive about the role that he could play. And that role developed over time to basically being the kin kingpin again. Mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't the president of the company, but he was the head. He was the, you the know, the face, figure. So yeah, for sure. And to the point of uh, when people would come and select their Steinway in the basement of Steinway Hall, Henry would go down and sign 
the uh, piano for them. You know, he, he, he was still there. He was still very much involved. And as a result of that, he had a real understanding as to the growth of that and how it changed from owner to owner. There were several people uh, the Birmingham Brothers, for example, purchased it from CBS and invested a lot of money to develop that factory again. Henry was there and recognized their efforts. And because they saw, he saw that they were dedicated to it, he tried that much harder uh, to play his role in promoting and um, marketing the, the company again, which um, I think is very noble of him. I think a lot of other people might have been bitter about that, but he did not and remained very uh, true to the, the core values of the, the company, which was started by his ancestors. So with that being said, we can kind of move away from one challenge, and that was selling, just making the decision to sell the company outside of the family, to another, which was the competition that Steinway faced uh, with the invention of the player piano coming out and piano and piano rolls, player piano rolls. Um, so it's really interesting to hear Henry's take on that new invention and how that impacted them. You, uh, as a um, as Steinway had a very similar challenge about a hundred years ago when the player piano and the piano roll came out. Right. I think that was very astutely handled by Charles H. Steinway, our, our second president, because it was um, um, what he did was make an arrangement with the Aeolian company uh, that made the machinery. And we had a 30-year contract from 1911 or some figure like that in which we would furnish pianos. Uh, the grand piano had to be structured a little differently so you could put this big uh, blower in there. It was all suck and blow pneumatics and that sort of stuff. And um, so we would sell them to the Aeolian company. The Aeolian company would put in the machinery and sell them to the dealers. And uh, this worked pretty well for both of us for many, many years. And that's why you see a piano that says Steinway Duoart. Duoart was the ultimate. They started with Pianola, I think for the uprights, and then this Duoart was the thing as they got the more sophisticated machinery. And that contract lasted right up until the depression when uh, Eolian went busted and eventually combined with the American piano, which was the other big one as the Eolian American. And they junked the Aeolian machinery and kept the Ampico machinery. And we made a few during the 30s. Somebody would get an order, and then that was the end of that. Now, of course, the whole concept has been revived in the modern technology. And we sell a lot of pianos, I'm told, in which are inserted this uh, new machine. And uh, that's, so that's come back. But meanwhile, there are, there are collector societies that still collect the old player rolls and refix them. And engineers, for some reason, love it because it's so different from electronics. It was done by mechanics. And you can fix it yourself if you're slightly handy. You get the repair manual. Oh, there's 17 pneumatic tubes. You take out the old ones and put in the new ones. It's not a question of taking the circuit out and shoving a new circuit in. So you can find your trouble and fix it yourself. And a lot of people like that. Hmm. So the player piano, certainly the, the 
biggest year of the piano business was about 1903 or four for the total piano business, something like 400,000 new pianos left factories in that year. And uh, uh, half of them were players. And there were big companies that uh, made the player machinery and so forth and inserted ones. And uh, then as I say, it just dropped dead in 1927 and uh, the whole thing was absolutely over. So it's a strange sort of thing. And then when you think back, uh, after all, 1904 and five, when this peak period arrived, it uh, was when the movies were coming in, the automobile was starting to become cheap enough for somebody to really use, and uh, our habits changed in a way that made the piano less essential as home entertainment. And then in 1927, the big change again, network radio had us all sitting, looking at a box, which is what we're still doing. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the long range story on that. So as Elizabeth just uh, was alluding to, there, the challenges there of the competition of the player piano, I remember reading in the music trade magazines that in 1901, which is the year that NAM was established, um, there were more player pianos being sold than bathtubs in the United States. And I don't know if that means that musicians and <laughs> dirt go hand in hand. I don't know. But um, thinking of it from the Steinway perspective, boy, that's a lot of competition out there all mm -hmm. of a sudden. These player pianos, for the first time ever, somebody could have a, a musical instrument in their home and not know how to play a note. It was no longer a required uh element of purchasing a piano and so they had some stiff competition one of the things that they did to combat that which isn't discussed in this interview but is discussed in a second interview that we did with him years later you could have a piece of art in your home and they would create these amazing pianos called the art case pianos which were high-end beautiful they play great of course but they looked brilliant they had a lot of uh, wood carving on the legs for example and then they would paint on the sides and on the top different scenes uh, there was one that was here in the museum of making music from 1905 called the the dance of the ballerina and the first picture on the right of the piano uh, had a young woman in basically um, um, shabby clothes and and rags but learning how to dance and as you walk around the piano she got a little bit better her mother made her a dress and then on the very top is where she debuted as a ballerina and so here is a talking piece that you could have in your home it's a piece of art you can walk around it uh, you can invite all the people uh, over for a party and if you're smart and don't know how to play it because this is when people started purchasing pianos that didn't know how to play, uh, you could have some sheet music of the latest song on there and hope that one of your guests will know how to play so you can finally hear what your piano sounds like. It was a really clever solution. And of course, the people who did know how to play and could afford it also had uh, something to, to make music with as well as uh, a very interesting piece to talk about in their home. So that is a very brilliant way that the Steinway Company addressed some of their competition when the player pianos first came out. They also had the challenges that we're going to hear about next uh, in this uh, segment from Henry's interview about the stencil piano. And if you if you know that story, it was basically when less than reputable manufacturers were putting names of pianos that were very close to sounding like 
pianos that you recognize, like Steinwein or Baldwin, <laughs> and they were just slightly misspelled enough to get some people who didn't pay close enough attention um, fooled. And so the stenciling pianos um, w- was really an undertaking of the Steinway company. They went to Washington and, along with some other folks, really did away with that. There were some laws that finally got enacted that allowed that to be illegal. Uh, but it also motivated 53 dealers to get together at a piano manufacturing um a meeting in 1901 and start a charter of a new organization that we now know as NAM. So um, there's some good that came from that, of course. And we all got a job as a result of all those guys <laughs> getting together. <laughs> and now you get to go to a NAM show twice a year. That's right. <laughs> because people are trying to copy Make counter- Steinways. Make <laughs> yes, counterfeit exactly. pianos. <laughs> so thank you, CD Underbelly of America. <laughs> <laughs> so let's hear uh, Henry's take on the st- the stencil pianos. Oh, stencil pianos, yes. That came in uh, in the, I think the 80s or, or sometime around then the manufacturers started to uh, make them and uh, many of them did give Steinway a hot foot with similar names we were. <laughs> so that's the, the, but the stencil piano as such was an important development in the piano business. And there was a man in the 90s who had a big factory, and I just can't think of his name at the moment, who really developed that business. He was a Yankee, and he analyzed the piano business, and he thought it could be made by mass production means. And uh, he would put any name on anybody wanted. And it developed that business, which, of course, Steinway hated, but that's, that's what's happened and it's endemic ever since. A lot of these large companies that Nahum Stetson put in business, like Sherman Clay and like Lyon and Healy, they either had their own factory at some point or when they gave up their factory they had Lyon and Healy pianos. Steinert today has somebody make a piano called Steinert and so uh, this stencil piano thing uh, exists. And I guess it fits in today with marketing like uh, these guys who who make clothes seem to put it on perfume and underwear and god knows everything else so that uh, it, it's become more sophisticated than it used to be okay so what are we going to do next looks like we've got our final section here uh hearing from henry steinway and let's see he is going to be talking about um a merchandise outside of the pianos as well as the arrival of the centennial steinway to the museum of making music and i I just wanted to say too that um henry had a large part in the opening of the museum of making music if i'm yeah he was the first president of the museum of making music's board Uh, there is a gallery that's dedicated to him our gallery four and he loved this place. We used to joke that um, when he would get awards for other museum involvement, because he loved museums, by the way, he traveled all over the world and would always go to a museum wherever he went. When he was given an award at the Smithsonian in Washington, he took his time for his acceptance speech to talk about our museum, which was really cool, something that we like to brag about. I think one of the successes is that we never did try anything else. Um, Various attempts of a small nature were considered, but uh, nothing really like that. And it 
it did give some trouble to a lot of people. The, the um, story and clock company in the 20s went into the radio business and then Atwater Kent came out with a small cheap radio and they were out of business on that. They lost a lot of money. The old Kimball company in Chicago made uh, laboratory furniture, which was then wood. And uh, I think they lost a bundle on that. So that Steinway never really, uh, we just stuck to the knitting and made the Steinway piano and that was it. A proud moment for us at uh, NAM and the Museum of Making Music coming up in a couple of months will be the arrival of the Centennial Steinway. Yes. Uh, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of NAM, tell me, tell me about that. Well, I don't really know uh, whose idea that was, but I think it was a wonderful idea. And I know the piano was here in Steinway Hall for a while to collect when we had any distinguished artists come through, we had them sign it. So this piano has on its plate a bunch of signatures uh, to NAM, and. Uh, uh, I'm thrilled with the idea that the headquarters will have a Steinway piano there, and it will be presented when? I've forgotten when the... I believe it's uh, I think February or March. It's, it's coming up quite quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, uh, I don't know what kind of ceremony. Is it going to be uh, out there, I assume, in yes. Carlsbad? Yeah. Yes. Mm. We, yeah, we have a couple of things planned, but I think what, for, from my point of view, from the curator's standpoint yeah. and some of the special programs that we've been able to put on. It'll be so wonderful to have an in-house piano. Absolutely. And yeah. we can't think of a better one to have. So Absolutely. We're, we're greatly appreciative. I, I think it's great. And of course, we're thrilled that uh, <clears throat> they, they have a Steinway at NAM, and it'll be there, it'll be used, and I'm sure it'll be made available when you, when you, I know those facilities are used by all kinds of people. and. Uh, mm -hmm. So there it is, and the piano should be used. That's the idea of it. Once again, thanks for joining us for this conclusion of our two-part series on Henry Steinway. We look forward to having you in two weeks for our next episode. Later, skaters. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.